Part 1, Chapter 8 of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mons, August 8 to November 11, 1918. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part 1, Chapter 8. Operations, August 12 to 20. The heroic though fruitless assault of the 32nd British Division upon the immensely strong enemy positions in front of Palvillier and Damery is worth recording in more detail because it opened the way for a magnificent feat of arms on part of troops of the 3rd Canadian Division. Two and a half miles northwest of Roy, right athwart the Amiens Roy Road, rises the hundred-meter eminence known, from the singular shape of the wood at its foot, as the Bois en Z, or Z Wood. It formed an important feature of ancient defenses in this region, and to this day the galleries hewn from the living rock still exist in the base of the hill. The enemy went on the defensive prior to the battles of the Somme in 1916, was quick to seize its value and make of it the pivot of his defense in front of Roy, a considerable railway center. Linked up with the villages to the north, it formed a chief outwork of its Roy Chalnay line. Its importance was so generally recognized that in the early stage of the present battle, a squadron of the Fort Gary Horse had made a reckless dash down the Roy Road in the hope of galloping the position, a fatal ride described in detail on a subsequent page. The enemy held in force Andishy, a village a mile southwest of Zed Wood, which for a few hours had been in the hands of our cavalry on August 10, Damery, three-quarters of a mile to the northeast of the wood, and Parvillier, the same distance due north of Damery. His right flank, though somewhat compromised by the capture of Focus Court recorded above, a village a mile and three-quarters north and a little east of Parvillier, still rested firmly on the wood immediately north of Parvillier, with the little hamlet of Maison Bleu just beyond, and received additional support from the fortified village of La Chavette, a mile and a quarter northeast of Parvier, and therefore the same distance southeast of Focuscourt. Running for a thousand yards south of Damery and so northeast of Zed Wood is Damery Wood. For military purposes of an earlier age, this old Roman road had been led right over the crest of Zed Wood, and on each side for a mile or two west, the enemy had lined it with trenches and wire, with machine-gun positions sweeping what was in effect a natural glacis. The same defense system with a double line of trench had been carried from the Roy Road west of Damery and thence west of Parvier. As is usual in this part of the country, each of these villages is perched upon a slight elevation, rising from 90 meters at Damery to 95 at Parvier, crowned with the dense foliage of the village park. Immediately east of this line, the ground rises gently up, to fall away in a little dip, and then rise again to the villages of Goyencourt and frenoy le roy the former being about 1,200 yards, and the latter 2,000 yards northeast of Damery, and these could not have been placed better to afford support to both Damery and Parvier, either by infantry or artillery. Goyencourt is on a slightly higher level than Damery but the ridge intervening prevents direct observation, 
and was to form the key to the battle tactics of our troops who finally captured it. The weakness of the position is that immediately in front of it lies a wide plateau, with a uniform elevation of 100 meters, distant about a thousand yards from both Damery and Parvier, and, what is worse from the point of view of the defense, thrusting in a tongue between them. On this higher ground is situated the old British front line of the Somme, but it is bare and open, affording no natural cover. To make a frontal attack necessitated descending from the plateau, and then advancing up the reverse slope against the villages, everywhere exposed to artillery and machine-gun fire. The only shelter was an old but still deep support trench, running east and west, and leading directly out of our defense system into Damery Village. It was against this immensely strong position that the 32nd Division was sent in to attack. This British division had been brought hastily down from the north, covering part of the distance by marching, and the troops were tired out when they took over from our 3rd Division on the night of August 9-10. During August 10, elements of the division improved the line with a view to securing a better jumping-off ground. There was no sleep at night, for the enemy kept up a deluge of artillery fire, liberally besprinkled with gas shells. At half-past nine in the morning of Sunday, August 11, the division launched an attack extending over its whole front, supported by a not very successful barrage. The troops attacked with the utmost gallantry, but were met by a withering and crushing fire, and at no point made an advance of more than a hundred yards beyond our trench system. The units engaged included Devon troops and Highland Light Infantry, and our men who witnessed the slaughter said it was an inspiring sight to see these attempting to dig in under the hail and fury of fire. Finally the division fell back, having suffered nearly 2,000 casualties, and the following night was relieved by the 3rd Canadian Division. The heavy loss was due primarily to the divisional artillery putting down their barrage too far ahead of the troops, with the result that their men were not following the barrage sufficiently closely. No troops in the world could have shown greater fortitude or pertinacity, the attack being persisted in long after its hopelessness was revealed. The 3rd Canadian Division took over again, therefore, on Sunday night, August 11-12. to the divisional commander, Major General L.J. Lipset, at once set about his preparation for the attack. He decided that our left sector in front of Parvillers offered best prospects for an initial success. Plans were carefully prepared for amassing of artillery, and for this purpose the divisional artillery had the support of the 5th Canadian Divisional Artillery with some heavy batteries. Monday and Tuesday were devoted to fighting the way step by step through the old trench system up to the northern and western edge of Parvier and Damery. This was done under unremittent and intense enemy fire both day and night, our troops continually having to put on their gas masks. Nor was this all. On Monday the enemy made two determined counterattacks, and on Tuesday night counterattacked three times, but on each occasion was beaten off. Finally all was ready, and it was decided to open the attack on Parvillers on Wednesday night. The assault was assigned to the 7th Brigade, and one battalion, the 42nd, Royal Highlanders of Montreal, Lieutenant Colonel R. L. H. Ewing, 
started in by making a detour north of Parvillers, bombing as they went. So soon as this movement was well under way, the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry, Lieutenant Colonel C.J.T. Stewart, initiated a similar attack south of Parvillers, thrusting in along the high spur alluded to above. By dawn, both battalions were established on the northern and southern outskirts of the village, respectively. At a quarter past six, our massed artillery laid down a hurricane barrage for fifteen minutes. The two battalions then rushed the village, joining hands fifteen minutes later, with combined casualties of but five men since the kickoff of the previous night. But the heavy fighting was yet to come. Leaving the 42nd to mop up the village, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry pushed on to the east and prepared to fight off a determined counterattack developing from La Chavette to the northeast, but they were immediately appraised of another attack coming at their rear from Damery. Nothing daunted, they formed front both ways and fought their way back to Parvillers, though the enemy was coming on four deep from two directions. The 42nd came up to their support, and soon the other two battalions of the brigade, the Royal Canadian Regiment and the 49th of Edmonton, were on the ground helping to consolidate the position. During the course of the day, the enemy attacked again and again, but finally desisted, the Princess Patricia's estimating 500 dead on their front. The village was honeycombed with subterranean passages, and in mopping up these, three platoons of the 42nd, about 90 men, not only killed a hundred of the enemy as they strove to fight their way out, but captured and sent to the rear 402 prisoners. These two battalions suffered heavy casualties, but they were incurred after the village had been stormed. One officer remarked that there had been no harder infantry fighting since Moquet Farm. Many individual feats of valor characterized this fight for Parvillers, such as that of Private Thomas Dennison, of the 42nd Battalion, a native of Denmark, but who enlisted in Montreal. During ten hours of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, which resulted in the capture of over a mile of strongly garrisoned and stubbornly defended enemy trenches, he displayed conspicuous and continuous bravery. Five times in succession he rushed forward alone and single-handed put hostile machine guns out of action, accounting for twelve of the enemy with bomb and bayonet. His sustained valor and resourcefulness inspired his comrades at a very critical stage of the battle. At a critical period of the counter-attack, when his platoon was isolated and almost surrounded, Sergeant Robert Spall of the Princess Patricia's seized a Lewis gun, and jumping upon the parapet of the trench his platoon was holding, poured in a withering fire on the oncoming enemy ranks, inflicting many casualties. He then led his men along the trench into a gap, seventy-five yards from the enemy, where, picking up another Lewis gun, this gallant NCO again climbed the parapet, and by his fire at point-blank range, checked the enemy advance. He was here fatally wounded, but his courage and resourcefulness had saved his platoon. Born in Suffolk, England, he was brought by his parents to Montreal when a child, and at the outbreak of the war was engaged in business in Winnipeg. In the meantime, another battle had developed almost unexpectedly at Damery, on the front of the 9th Brigade. The 52nd Battalion, for the most part lumbermen and prospectors recruited at Fort William and Port Arthur, 
held the line immediately opposite the village. On Wednesday night the enemy made a half-hearted attack, and at nine o'clock next morning, August 15, a platoon was sent up the support line described above, bombing as they went, to test out the enemy's resistance. They reported back all clear. The battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel W. W. Foster, made a personal reconnaissance with one runner, and, satisfied that the village could be carried, ordered an attack at five minutes' notice. One company on the right went forward south of the village, a second company followed up the support trench, and a third skirted the village on the north, with the remaining company in support. Very shortly, Damery was in our hands. A few of the enemy were found in dugouts, and one of those lunged his bayonet through the sleeve of Colonel Foster's tunic before the latter shot him down. Suspecting a trap, he led his battalion east of the village and formed up behind the ridge, with one company pushed well out on either flank. In the meantime, the 116th Battalion, Centre Ontario, was pushing forward on his left, and the 43rd Battalion, Winnipeg, in close support of the 52nd. The movement was carried out barely in time, for there broke on the doomed village an intense enemy cannonade of heavy and light guns but not a shell touched our men, lying behind the ridge. Gas, laid down in the village, floated back on a west wind over their heads. Then, after the preparation was considered complete, dense waves of field gray, converging on Damery from both Goyencourt and Freynoy, flooded in to an easy victory. They came in full marching equipment with their blankets, evidently expecting to break through. Not less than four enemy battalions came against our little force. They came confidently on to one of the most terrible slaughters of the war, for our magnificent artillery, assisted by French batteries on our right, laid down an intense barrage in the center of their massed advance, and right across its entire length, extending as far back as the goyencourt Freynoy road. The front waves were caught between the barrage and the village and must either fight their way through or surrender. They fought with desperate courage. Our center fell back a little to the edge of the village, while both our flanks, somewhat advanced and wheeling in, poured a murderous rifle and machine-gun fire into the penned enemy mass. He was doomed. A few fought through to the village and fell beneath our bayonets. Some 250 surrendered. The rest died. The dead, conservatively estimated at over 1,000, were piled up rampart high, for our range was never more than 200 yards. This was at one o'clock in the afternoon. At four o'clock, the enemy again made a massed attack, so vital was the position to the defense of Roy. But by this time, the Cameron Highlanders of Winnipeg had come up in support with a company on either flank of the 52nd and secured Damery Wood the enemy was driven back with further slaughter. Among our wounded was Lieutenant Colonel Ukerhart, who had so gallantly brought up his battalion, the 43rd. Assistance, too, had been rendered from the direction of the Roy Road by the International Company, half French and half Canadian, who formed the liaison between us. Our gallant French neighbors, indeed, fired by our success, pitched in that evening and stormed Zed Wood. By a singular chance, the immediate neighbors of the 52nd Canadian Infantry Battalion were the 52nd French Chasseurs. 
and an interchange of compliment and congratulation took place on the very fine work of both sides. The remainder of the Battle of Amiens, so far as the Canadian Corps is concerned, is thus described by the Corps commander, quote, On the nights of August 15-16 to and 16-17, to the 1st Canadian Division relieved the 3rd Canadian Division, the latter being withdrawn to Corps Reserve. Progress was made during the night of August 16-17, to the enemy being driven out of Fransart by the 4th Brigade, Brigadier General R. Rennie, and out of La Chavette by the 1st Canadian Division, our line in the right being advanced in cooperation with the French. The relief of the 2nd Canadian Division by the 4th Canadian Division was carried out on the nights of August 15-16 to and 16-17, to the former being withdrawn to Corps Reserve on August 17. The operation which had been projected for August 16 had been postponed, and it had been decided to transfer the Canadian Corps back to the 1st Army, the move to begin by strategical trains on August 19. August 18 was quiet along the front, but on August 19 the 4th Canadian Division carried out a minor operation near Chile, which greatly improved our line in that neighborhood. Four hostile counterattacks to recover the newly won ground were beaten off during the night. On August 19 the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions started their move to 1st Army, and on the night of August 19-20, the relief of the 1st Canadian Division commenced. This relief was completed on August 22nd, and the 1st Canadian Division was placed in Corps Reserve. On August 22nd, I handed over command of the Canadian Corps Front to the General Officer Commanding Australian Corps, and my headquarters moved north to Hot Cloak, opening there at 10 a.m. on the same day. Between August 2 and 22, the Canadian Corps fought against 15 German divisions. Of these, 10 were directly engaged and thoroughly defeated, prisoners being captured from almost every one of their battalions. The five other divisions fighting astride our flanks were only partially engaged by us. In the same period, the Canadian Corps captured 9,131 prisoners, 190 guns of all calibers, and more than 1,000 machine guns and trench mortars. The greatest depth penetrated approximated to 14 miles, and an area of over 67 square miles, containing 27 towns and villages, had been liberated. The casualties suffered by the Canadian Corps in the 14 days heavy fighting amounted to Officers, killed, 126, missing, 9, wounded, 444, Total, 579. Other ranks. Killed, 1,688. Missing, 436. Wounded, 8,659. Total, 10,783. Considering the number of German divisions engaged and the results achieved, the casualties were very light. End quote. The capture of Fransart by the 2nd Canadian Division was a brilliant piece of work. On August 19, orders were issued to the 4th and 5th Brigades to push forward and establish a line which should deny to the enemy the defenses of the railway east of Fransart and also clear the village, thus enabling the 1st Canadian Division, which was attacking on the right in cooperation with the French, to obtain their objective of La Chavette. 
the 19th Battalion, Central Ontario, Lieutenant Colonel L. H. Millen, attacked at half-past four in the afternoon and successfully carried out the operation, establishing a line well forward of the village, capturing many prisoners and machine guns and much material. By half-past seven, the line had been consolidated. This battalion was assisted by two companies of the 18th Battalion, Western Ontario, on the right, who, after the attack, were used to protect and hold the extended right flank, caused by the division on the right not having been able to advance simultaneously. During these operations, since August 8, casualties among officers were very heavy. In addition to casualties among battalion commanders mentioned previously, Lieutenant Colonel C. E. Bent of the 15th Battalion of Toronto was severely wounded, the command devolving until his return some weeks later on Major J. D. Garvin. Lieutenant Colonel W. S. Lata of the 29th Battalion of Vancouver was also severely wounded. End of Part 1, Chapter 8